Chapter 26 The Fear of Victory Now Elisha was fallen sick of the sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elijah said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elijah put his hand upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elijah said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Apek, till thou hast consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And said to the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou should have smitten five or six times. Had thou smitten Syria till thou had consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And Elijah died, and they buried him. And the bands of Moabites invaded the land at the coming of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men. And they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elijah. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood up on his feet. Two kings. 13, verse 14 through 21. Elijah, on his deathbed, is visited by a young king, Joash. For 63 years, Elijah had been the great prophet in and to Israel. Joash thus went further than other kings of Israel in visiting the dying man. Prophets had not been popular with the monarchs who regarded them as dangerous meddlers. Joash, however, pays a very fine and accurate tribute to Elijah. He calls him, quote, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, end quote, and the father protector of the realm. Elijah is thus declared to be the true national defense of the kingdom. Joash knew the truth. His problem was unwillingness to live in terms of it. Elijah ordered Joash to take a bow and arrows and stand at an open east window. Elijah then placed his hands on the king's hands, thereby making it clear that the king's war against Syria was the prophet's and God's war. Elijah made it very clear to Joash what all this meant. Joash would have victory in a forthcoming battle. Quote, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance of Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Apheth till thou hast consumed them. End quote. Verse 17. Elijah then ordered Joash to take the arrows and either by bow or by hand drive them into the ground outside the door. 
Elijah's clear intent is first, let the whole quiver of arrows to be used. He does not limit the number. His order is to drive the, quote, arrows, unquote, into the ground. Like Ahab before him, Joash was unwilling to destroy Syria for fear of Assyria. He preferred to keep an enemy state alive as a buffer against the Assyrian Empire. This, the policy of Omar's dynasty, was now also the policy of the house of Jehu. Joash preferred fighting Syria to unswerving obedience to God. He was afraid of victory because victory would lead to great responsibilities. The fear of victory is not unusual. Doctors are plagued with healthy people with imaginary ailments. Others who do not go to doctors are always complaining about not feeling well, although they are healthy as an ox. They fear health because it brings them face to face with their responsibilities as men and women. In one way or another, countless people cripple themselves either physically or spiritually to avoid meeting life victoriously. The responsibilities of success and victory are avoided by many. For Joash, the fullness of victory required a fullness of surrender and truth in the Lord and obedience. Men are afraid to trust God wholly because they know God requires all of them. For them to be totally faithful to the Lord is to defeat for itself. For it means they are no longer captains of their souls and masters of their fates. God then becomes their Lord. Men prefer their sovereignty to God's sovereignty. This was the case with Joash. We are told that Joash did indeed defeat Syria three times. But no more. 2 Kings 13.25 Elijah died and was buried. In the next year, a Moabite invasion took place. One of the Moabites was killed in action. As his burial was in progress, the Moabites found it necessary to face an Israelite detachment. The dead Moabite was hastily dropped into Elijah's sepulcher. When his body touched the bones of Elijah, the man regained life and joined his fellow soldiers. This miracle came to be known in Israel as well as in Moab. Here, late in the day, God still offers Joash victory. The miracle witnesses to the fact the power of the God of Elijah is still available if Joash repents. The miracle of Elijah's bones is important in church history because it's part of the veneration of relics. Very early, the church gave high place to the relics of the saints and martyrs. In assessing this practice, two separate questions need to be answered. First, what is the source of veneration of relics? Is it rightly or wrongly based on something in the Bible, or is it pagan? It is easy and misleading to find pagan analogies to many practices. Thus, all too many Christians are convinced that Christmas trees are pagan in origin. It is clear that the worship of trees is found in many pagan cultures, but this means nothing. Marriage is found in many cultures, 
This did not invalidate marriage. The Christmas tree was plainly the tree of life, Jesus Christ. Genesis 2, verse 9, Revelation 22, verse 2, etc. And, until this generation, the ornaments represented the fruit born by that tree. Similarly, the veneration of relics is modeled upon the miracle proceeding from the bones of Elijah. Christians, from the beginnings, showed greater care for their dead than did members of their other religions, by and large, because of their resurrection faith. This meant a respect for all the Christian dead, especially saints and martyrs. There was no paganism in any of this, any more than with us. If we treasure a gift from a departed family member or a letter from a great Christian, the pagan analogies are there, but they are meaningless. Some people prize mementos of Elvis Presley does not mean we are influenced by him and his wretched life and music. If we, in turn, treasure some great memento of a great Christian, the source of the practice for the church was the bones of Elijah. And the normal sense of family love for great men and women of our faith. Second, the source of the veneration of relics was biblical. But was the practice biblical? Basic to the practice was the belief that power went out from the great saints of God. It went out from the border of Christ's garment. Matthew, verses 9. Matthew, chapter 9, 20-22-14-36. Out of this came the belief that because God's power was worked in the lives of the saints, the power could still go forth from their bones and relics. A subordinate aspect of the belief was feeling that it was a virtue and continuity in having relics in the church. The frauds, of course, were numerous, and the reformers, both Protestant and Catholic, ridiculed the many absurdities that existed. However, we must recognize that it is not an innovating spirit which led to the veneration of relics but a conspicuously conservative temper. Innovations were distrusted, and a local church's, quote, need, end quote, for relics was to bind itself to the church of the ages and the saints of Scripture. This belief in the power of God manifest in the past led to absurdities in the veneration of the past and its relics. The Protestant form of this veneration of the past has been the idolization of the early church, which was not lacking in sinners and problems as well as its saints. The practice thus went beyond Scripture. It limited the vision of men to much the past and too little to the present and future. Relics and their veneration, as well as veneration of the early church, have thrived because of faulty eschatologies. The greatness of Christ's work is seen as a past event. We will venerate the past. We, if we see, quote, greater works, end quote, ahead of us, John fourteen twelve, then we will work expectantly, confident in the splendor of God's power, which has not been made fully manifest, but shall be. Thus, a post-millennial perspective 
is the biblical remedy for this orientation on the past. And veneration of the past is an aspect of the fear of victory. This audio version of Chariots of Prophetic Fire studies in Elijah and Elisha by Rusus John Rushduni has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Doug Hitzel. Please visit chalcedon.edu to download or purchase this book.